We are in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, and today we'll be looking at the wedding at Cana. I will read from verse 1 to 11. John chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now... There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word, and it is an exciting word at times, filled with many glorious truths to which we pray will be revealed to us this day and believed as we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure the vast majority of you are well aware of the joy and celebration of a wedding, but also the extreme anxieties that can emerge at a wedding, before a wedding, hopefully not after the wedding, but uh, weddings are a time where uh, a lot of things have been prepared for, need to go right, and then something can happen. And usually what happens, at least in my experience, is that people don't really know what's going on, but there's pandemonium breaking out amongst a few people rushing around trying to figure out the latest crisis and how it's going to be solved. And uh, you can see people at their best at a wedding, and you can actually see people at their worst at a wedding. It's a, it's a real mystery, uh, wedding days. Uh, you you see sometimes brides go completely nuts. Uh, I'm saying this based on a lot of personal experience, by the way, of doing weddings. And the glorious thing is that they almost always seem to get it together for the great occasion. But what you miss behind the scenes is quite remarkable at times. Now, here we have a wedding, and I will be perfectly honest And blunt in saying, I think most people with a surface knowledge of this story really miss most of the major points of what's going on here. Uh, The crass understanding of this goes something like the following. Uh, Jesus begins his ministry. 
he's going to prove that he's God. He's the Son of God. So he does a miracle, and people go, wow, he could turn water into wine. He must be the Son of God, and we should believe in him. Now, we're better than that. We've been here far too long to just read the Scriptures and have such a surface-level understanding of what is, I think, a rich biblical theological uh, story going on here. And what is going on? Well, there is a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and we don't really know where Cana is today. Uh, There are tourist guides that will tell you where Cana is and charge you a great deal of Uh, money to take you to this alleged place. And in fact, when I was in Israel, there was a wine from Cana that they were trying to sell to me. And I wasn't buying that. Uh, Again, I know what they're up to. Uh, But there was a place called Cana in the region of Galilee. It's in the northern part. And Jesus uh, finds himself invited on account of probably his mother. You notice, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, here's the first point that you need to understand about this whole narrative. And in fact, John's gospel, she is no longer called Mary in John's gospel. She is simply referred to as the mother of Jesus. And this will become important as this story unfolds. Now, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, this probably happened on a Wednesday night, and weddings lasted seven days. And what would happen on the Wednesday night if a virgin was being married, uh, Thursday nights if a widow was being married, they would uh, go at nighttime with candlelight torches, and it would be a great procession, and they would arrive at a party that would last roughly a week. Uh, We're you know, we think we've made great advancements in our day, the 21st century. I think we're so pathetic at times. We we could probably only handle about several hours of a wedding because of the stress that goes into it. Well, back in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was seven days of partying, of feasting, of enjoying oneself. You could actually get time off work because of a wedding, and it would last a week. Certain activities would be suspended because of the wedding. And so Jesus is invited with his disciples. And I will admit this week to thinking, I hope sanctified thoughts about Jesus getting ready for the wedding. And, you know, was he making himself look good? Did he, you know, how did he do his hair and put on something nice? He's with his disciples and they're rocking up to a wedding. I I find that quite nice to think about the fact that Jesus probably was excited to go to a wedding. But he looked forward to this feast. He looked forward to this celebration. And as you read the gospel accounts of Jesus, you'll find that he was actually quite a social person, always out and about with people enjoying himself. That is why when his opposition tried to discredit him, they called him what? A glutton and a drunkard. Now, they clearly saw that he liked to eat and liked to drink at times, and so Uh, took that to uh, a level that was unwarranted. But nevertheless, here he is with his disciples. And what ends up happening? Well, John gets right to the point. When the wine ran out. Now, this is a big deal, and I'll tell you why. Back again in this culture, there was a level of uh, reciprocal giving that was quite important. So when you went to a wedding, you brought a gift. 
But when you brought a gift, there was an expectation that the bridegroom, and back in that culture, it was the bridegroom who was to provide. I don't know how things uh, changed where it became for a while, you know, the, 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 the bride had to the family, and you thought, okay, I've got one daughter, I've got three boys, okay, I'm going to be pretty good. Um, it was the bridegroom's family that had to provide the food and the wine for the wedding. And if they failed to provide enough food and enough wine at a wedding, guess what? They could be open to a lawsuit. It wasn't as polite as today. You know, you get a a little card with a McDonald's gift card for 10 bucks and you go, wow, they must be on tough times, but forgive and forget and you move on. You don't provide nice wine and food at a wedding back then. You could be sued. So when you see those words, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him. Now, Mary was clearly involved in the catering of this wedding in some official capacity. And she goes to Jesus. They have no wine. Now, why would she go to Jesus? Was she expecting a miracle? And I actually don't believe she was, because this was his first sign. I don't believe Jesus was, as some of the uh, ancient traditions said, he would find a pebble and turn it into a bird and things like that. Silly stuff. I believe that Joseph has been dead for perhaps many years now, that Jesus has taken on the trade of his father as a carpenter, that she was used to his resourcefulness as the one who, being the firstborn, would provide for the family. And so naturally she goes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Now, Christ's response is really remarkable. Because he says to her, not my dear mother, He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this may seem a bit of a curt response. I don't know how many of you husbands uh, say, "Uh, woman, uh, try it today. Woman, uh, would you fetch me a drink? Uh, We could even have a poll at the evening service of how that worked out for you. Now, I don't think it was perhaps quite as rude as we may understand that, but there is clearly, clearly a distancing of the mother-son relationship that would have been present for the first 30 years of his life now that Jesus has entered into his public ministry. And you'll see all sorts of clues about this throughout the gospel, but Jesus is having to distance himself from that type of relationship. And you can see that in this verse because He will say, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Here's the important point. Jesus is not at the beck and call of his mother. Now that he has begun his public ministry, he must, as he has always done, he must make it about his father's will. He cannot be called on upon his mother to do those things without first prioritizing what is God's will for him in his ministry. So as you read the Gospel of John, you find that Jesus is constantly emphasizing this point in John chapter 5. He says, I can do nothing on my own. So when she says, go, do something, what does he need to remember? 
I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, nor your will, but the will of him who sent me. Or later on he will say, and he who sent me is with me. He has left me not alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, my father. So whatever Jesus is going to do at this wedding, it must be according to the will of the Father. And you will find that in other gospel accounts, what is really important is the spiritual relationship one has to Jesus. So on an occasion, Jesus is teaching in a household. They say, oh, your mother and your brothers are here. And instead of Jesus saying, oh, welcome my mother and my brothers into the house, he says, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? Those who do the will of God are. Mary must relate to Christ not primarily as his mother, but as his disciple. So when he says those words, what does this have to do with me? It probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to us unless we also read those words immediately thereafter. My hour has not yet come. And my hour is an hour in John's gospel that speaks of his future death and resurrection, his glory, and all that that means. So Jesus knew at the wedding at Cana that his hour had not yet come. He always had his death and resurrection before him. And he knew that that was going to be his glory. So in his high priestly prayer, he begins in John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, What? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He knows that his death and resurrection is his glory. So when he says, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's saying, My glory has not yet come. But it seems as though he still seems to answer the request. Now, why would he do that? Because as he seeks the will of the Father, he also remembers the Old Testament Scriptures. And this would be a very bad start to his ministry if there was no wine and he was present. Why is that? Because in the Old Testament, there are so many places, like in Amos chapter 9, where the sign that the Messiah has arrived is the sign that wine will flow liberally. So if there's no wine and the Messiah, allegedly the Messiah is there, it wouldn't make sense. So there's all sorts of clues. When people have their eyes opened, that's the sign the Messiah is there. When there's lots of wine, it's the sign that the Messiah is there. And so... The beginning of his ministry demands that there is a liberal flow of wine. So, the hour of the great wine, his glorification has not yet come. And so, what we are given now is a foretaste of what will be a reality in the future. So this miracle is meant to give you a glimpse of heaven. It's meant to give you a glimpse of the wedding feast that is going to be that which we all enjoy together. And so he ushers in the sort of already but not yet. So look at her response. Not do whatever I tell you. Do 
whatever he tells you. She leaves the matter to Christ. Now these words have an application far beyond simply this context. Do whatever he tells you. And I think uh, the following verses then start to make a little bit more sense. Now, notice there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So that's roughly 500 to 750 liters of water that these stone jars are able to contain. Now, this is important. Why does John say there were six stone water jars there and then add for the Jewish rites of purification? Because at a wedding, this is what would happen. At a Jewish wedding, people would come and they would have to wash themselves. They would wash their hands. They would wash their feet. They would have to have a liberal supply of water because of the old covenant in which there were all sorts of washings. Now, remember last week I said how all sorts of baptisms took place? Well, in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, we are told that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. So at the wedding, they had to have a lot of water there because they had to have a lot of washings. And they hold to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Everything was bound up with washing. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Remember I said they baptize couches? And you're all like, what is that? That word for washing in Greek is baptismo. They baptized everything. They washed utensils, they washed hands, they washed couches. They were a very clean people in that sense because of all that that meant. Now, why does this have any relevance to what's going on here? Well, here these stone water jars are, each holding about 750 liters maximum, but at least 500 liters. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Where would they have filled these jars with water? Where would they have had enough water to fill these jars? And the answer is very clearly, a well. And when you look at weddings and brides and things like that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will find very often a well is involved with a wedding. I don't have time to go through all of that. So they fill the jars with water from a well up to the brim. So far, so good. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now here's where things get a little bit complicated. Most of us probably have read this and with the force of just habit have thought that they filled these jars with water to the brim and then Jesus performs a miracle And then the water in these jars turns into wine, right? You all read it that way. But actually, it may not be the case. In fact, the verb to draw is always used as a specific word for drawing from a well. So in John chapter 4, they drew water from the well. 
Now, here's what this means. It may mean that the water that's filled to the brim is representing the end of the old covenant, the rites of cleansing, so that there's no longer this clean, unclean distinction. It's filled to the brim. And actually, where the wine comes from is the well, so that there is not actually a limit on the wine. So instead of there being 500 liters of wine, there is actually a well from which inexhaustible fountain of wine is offered to the guests. They do not pour out of the jars. They draw out from the well this wine. And some of you are going, hang on now. Hang on. It's like that time when I said that Jonah died when he fell off the boat. And you're like, hang on now. But he died. And here I think it probably came from the well. Because what is being taught to us here is that the old is being replaced by the new. And so what ends up happening? Well, they drew some out and took it to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and you see the word wine has been used several times. I hate to break it to you, but it probably was real wine. Now, I'm not going to get hot and bothered about what percentage it was. I don't think it was 14%. It was probably more diluted than it is today. I'll acknowledge that much. But they did not have all of the refrigeration techniques and all of this to keep this as grape juice. It would have been impossible in that culture, in that climate, for this Fruit of the vine to not ferment to some extent. And there's another reason. In verse 10, notice what is said. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely. That word actually is where we get methusko, Greek word, when they've become inebriated. When the people have become inebriated, not necessarily drunk, but they've had enough to have a bit of an attitude adjustment. And they've had some wine. Now, this wine may be 5%, it may be 7%. I don't even know. I don't really care. The point is, wine was made. And the point is, Jesus made it. And the point is, he did it publicly. So, you could say, I choose not to drink wine. Well done, good and faithful servant. You should never go against your conscience, ever. If you believe it's wrong for you to drink, do not drink. But don't try to do exegetical gymnastics with God's word, whereby you have a preconceived idea of what is right and wrong, bringing it to the text and denying what is the plain teaching of the context. Jesus made wine. And notice it was good wine. As opposed to, you know, we had some good grape juice earlier. This grape juice is even better. It's just not, it's just nonsensical. They had wine, but all of a sudden, usually what happens is you drink the bad wine after you've had the good wine. And we even do that today. We have different ways of doing that. I, uh, I have a father who, um, when people are over, he, he says to me, hey, 
come into my office. And I'm like, oh, this is good. Uh, I go into the office and he opens up somewhere and he has a nice bottle of wine there and he pours my glass. He says, this is the good stuff out there. I've got the other stuff. And you see all the people we've invited over drinking their wine and stuff. And I come out of the office with a glass of wine and my brother-in-law is drinking the bad wine. Oh, it's so funny. Um, You probably don't think so, but I do. (laughs) And uh, You can tell there's sometimes good wine, sometimes bad wine. Uh, And when you've had a good glass of wine, it's hard then to go back to the bad wine, right? Some of you are at that point in your lives, aren't you? You know the difference. Well, here, clearly, they have seen something has gone wrong. Because all of a sudden, the good wine has been kept until now. And we have no idea how much anxiety was going through the bridegroom, while all of this was happening, he knows that something has happened. And people are now able to drink freely. Now, in verse 11, we are told the purpose of this. This, the first of his signs, not his miracles so much as a sign, because this is a sign of something. What is it a sign of? Well, it's firstly a sign of his glory. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why did he do this? He's not just manifesting his glory that he can perform a miracle. He is actually manifesting his glory because he is saying he's the Messiah. The age of blessing has arrived and every blessing is attached now to Jesus Christ who turns water into wine, who takes the old covenant and brings about the new, who brings an age of blessing. And we don't know who else may or may not have believed in him. It may be that no one else really found out about what was going on. Some of the people behind the scenes knew. But we may not know that hundreds of people at this wedding had no idea where this wine came from. And they were just drinking freely for the next few days. But the point is, his disciples believed in him. Not simply because he could perform a miracle, but because of what that miracle meant. He is God's Messiah. Now, let's just wrap this up with one major point of application, and it's this. The bridegroom knew that he was in trouble. And in a culture of shame, he was open to a massive lawsuit. He had made a mistake in one way or another, And he was going to be publicly shamed before multitudes of people who came to have a wedding and he could not produce. And the last time God is at a wedding is in the Garden of Eden where he brings Eve to Adam. And Adam messes up. And Adam could not produce the righteousness that God required. And you and I are the bridegroom at this wedding. We're the ones who have been shamed. Our sin has shamed us. We stand there helpless and hopeless. And there's nothing that we can do. And God comes to us and says, where is your wine? And we have nothing to produce. And it's humiliating because that's what our sin does to us. It humiliates us before God. And yet that same God who sees us in all of our naked shame of being unable to produce the wine that all of you ought to produce before God 
along comes the true bridegroom who produces not just 500 to 750 liters of wine, but produces an inexhaustible fountain of blessing so that you can stand before God and say, here it all is. I have produced it all before you because I produced it from the hand of Christ himself who gives me all that he has produced. Where is your wine, Adam? And he points to Christ. Where is your wine? And you point to Christ. And this is a pointer then to our eternal reality of the wedding feast of the Lamb where we shall sit and we shall drink and we shall eat and we shall be merry and it shall all be provided by God. And so you get a small glimpse of an eternal reality by the one who is able to give you everything and much more. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for the wine that comes from the hand of Christ and that wine which is our righteousness, which is his glory. For when his hour came, he knew that it was his glory, not just his shame. And so we thank you that Christ has taken our shame and made it our glory. And we thank you that we shall one day be able to say that we too with him are drinking the good wine now, the wine of eternal life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we sing our final hymn, we'll have...